Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello, everyone. My name is Michaela Kolofsky, and it's my pleasure to be with you this morning in this conversation for Sydney Writers' Festival with the wonderful Jane Harper. I wanted to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to welcome any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are joining us today. Jane Harper is the internationally best-selling author of The Dry, Forces of Nature, The Lost Man and The Survivors. Her fifth novel, Exiles, went straight to number one on its release in September last year. It's now out in all English-language territories with foreign-language editions to come. She's won numerous awards and sold more than three million copies worldwide across 40 territories. The critically acclaimed adaptation of The Dry, starring Eric Banner as Aaron Falk, was released in 2020, and it's one of the highest-grossing Australian films of all time. The sequel to that film, Force of Nature, or The Dry 2, comes out in August, and we'll be talking about, a bit about that today as well. Jane was actually born in Manchester in the UK and moved to Australia with her family at the age of eight. She did return to the UK with her family and went on to study English and history at the University of Kent in Canterbury. On graduating, she worked in journalism and she's worked for several years as a senior news journalist before moving back to Australia in 2008. And she worked for different newspapers here as well in business reporting. But her breakthrough came with the dry at the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards in 2015. Today, I want to talk with her about how she constructs her heart-pounding mystery novels, the way she builds characters and plots, the power of importance of timing in mystery novels and thrillers, the power of landscape in all her novels, Aaron Falk, and Eric Banner, so there's a lot in store that will be a treat. Please join me in welcoming Jane Harper. Jane, I wanted to start with the first, with the most recent book, Exiles, which we have here. Um, where are we in this novel and who are we with? Yeah, so Exiles is my, it's my fifth novel. It's another Australian mystery. Um, and it's the third and final one featuring Aaron Falk, who we met, first met in The Dry and Force of Nature. Um, I went into that book knowing it was going to be Falk's final novel. The whole thing is kind of built around him and for him. Um, and this time it's set in um, beautiful kind of lush South Australian wine country. So I have to say that was um, one of the, the better research trips that I've ever had to do. <laughs> um, and yeah, and it's it sort of, um, he's reunited with the Reiko family who we've met in the dry. Um, and the book is, um, the openings, it opens with the disappearance of a, um, a mother at a festival um, but the main sort of part of the book, like all my books, is more about like the ripple effects of what happens, you know, in that kind of unsettling aftermath when something has happened and it's really affected so many people who, who are kind of close to, close to the incident. Mm. So five novels in, I wonder where do, the, where do the nuggets, where do the seeds of these stories come from? So where do the seed of exiles come from? Yeah, so I think... Um, you know, something I, I, I know is you know, going to be like a lot of aspiring authors here today and people who maybe are writing their, a book of their own. And I, I really want to, I guess, kind of um, make it clear, I suppose, that I think, I think um, something that really held me back for a lot of years when I was wanting to write a book was this expectation that, that this idea would, be, would come to be fully formed. And what's become really apparent, especially over five books, is that how, you know, the... Um, like the idea and the execution of that idea are two very separate parts of the creative process. So you kind of had the spark of an idea. And honestly, it's, it's as simple for me as um, something has happened. 
what does it look like and what has really happened? And it's those kind of three things that make up the elements of, you know, the mystery in all the books. Um, and then, you know, once you've kind of got, an, you know, those kind of three things, you sort of think that, that, could, that could be something. Then it's a question of thinking, well, could it be a whole book, though? Like, what's, you know, what kind of um, will, will, you know, is there enough to kind of really flesh this out? Like, what would the setting be? Who would the characters be? What would maybe the kind of relationships between those characters be? It's all those things you're starting to kind of try and add in and see if you can build it up to a point where you feel it would have enough to sustain, you know, 300 pages. Mm. You've taken readers all over the country in your different books, from the drought-ridden Kiwara in the dry to the rugged remote bush in Force of Nature, which I love, and to outback Queensland in The Lost Man and even to the Tasmanian coast in Survivors. What do you look for in a location if we're talking about that? How do you settle on where to set a story in order to sort of really delve into those mysterious aspects of it? Yeah, I think there are a few things. The, the, the setting is something that I think about really early on, um, you know, when I'm thinking about that initial kind of idea. Because, um, you know, you can, tell, you can tell a story in a lot of different ways. You know, you can have the same kind of core idea and it, can be, it could be told in a number of different types of scenarios. So, yeah, you can't, it's, kind of, it's kind of testing them out, like what would, be, what would work and, okay, that would work, but is that the best option and what would be a better option and what do I need to kind of bring to the idea? And what I'm looking for, for me in a setting, is um, ideally I want a setting that um, kind of ideally helps sort of um, spark the mystery in, in a way. So the, the location, it might not be the kind of the crucial factor, but there's something about the location that has kind of lent itself to the initial kind of crime or mystery. Um, and then um, what kind of characters would you find in that location? So who, you know, who would live there? Who would visit there? What kind of, what is their feelings about that place? Um, you know, and, and so you, can you have authentic characters that would help support this story in that, in that location? Would that be a realistic kind of group of people? Um, and then it's about, for me, sort of weaving in, kind of cherry-picking, I guess, elements that will um, make it feel authentic to people who know that kind of region, even though the, I sort of do fictionalise the towns and things, but know the kind of region. And also people who haven't been there, they kind of get a real sense of what it's like and what kind of... And I find the best way to do that is through the human connection. So you, what, what is keeping people awake at night? What troubles them? What does their children's education look like? All that kind of thing that's sort of, uh, sort of unique to a place. So then you kind of try and weave that in throughout, and then by the end, ideally, the reader looks back and thinks, yes, you know, that story couldn't have been told in any other setting. That was necessary for this whole plot to kind of um, develop. Mm. So you're talking about this great fusion between place and story and character. And I wonder, I said in, the, in, the, in our introduction that Jane was a journalist first, and I wonder if all those years of training has kind of shaped how you look at telling stories in that way. Yeah, like I think it definitely did. I mean, I was, um, I was a print journalist for 13 years before um, I wrote The Dry. And I mean, I did, I did loads of different types of um, stories. A lot of my career was on, um, it, you know, I started in the UK on like really kind of community regional papers. So I did a lot of, you know, school fates and kind of, you know, sort of kind of parish council meetings and things. And um, It's very important. That, you know, that's, what it, that, that's exactly kind of... So I was quite young and I was, you know, I'd go along to these you know, things and think, oh, God, like, you know, honestly, who cares? And then you get there and you realise, though, that people do care. Like, they really, they, they do care and it does matter. And I guess that was the, the best sort of training for me is realising, like, really trying to understand why 
why people care and why is it important and what is it, you know, and it's always important to them, I think, because it's like an emotional reason. It's because it's their community or it's because it's, yeah, their, their, their children's schooling or, um, you know, the heritage of their town or whatever. And it's, it's finding, I think, those... And, and that's, you know, what I try to do in fiction as well, finding those moments and those kind of connections that, um, you know, in, in the specific things that are universal to us all, like we can all relate on some level to caring about our neighbours or our community or our family. And that's... It's finding that sort of... That, that thread... In Exiles, um, we have the wonderful Aaron Falk, who we will talk a bit about today, and you reunite him with Greg Rako. And I wanted just to ask you about the two of them. I love these two together. There's something really special when they're together on the page. Um, They're also this really unusual team. You know, neither of them is kind of fitter or stronger or smarter necessarily than the other. They have like complementary overlapping skills. But I wondered, why do you love to put them together? What happens for you as a writer when you have that combination of them? Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to, with it being like Fawkes, like last book, I really wanted to kind of reunite him with, you know, some of the, um, I guess people who become kind of special to him. I mean, in the dry, he did forge this really, um, you know, he starts off with the book as a bit of a loner, and by the end, he has kind of forged this bit of a, like, you know, relationship with, you know, um, with the Reiko family. And um, it also, um, that was part of the reason why I set Exiles in South Australia, because there's a very brief mention in the dry about, Reco originally being from South Australia and in Exiles, Fork is going to be become the godfather to his, his second child. Um, and I think, you know, those are some of the, my favourite scenes to write. I think because I just, um, you know, I really kind of love the friendship between them. And, you know, they are kind of so gentle with him and they, they sort of they give him a bit of a glimpse of maybe... Um, you know, a, a life that he's not very used to, you know, this life where you do have, like, support and friendship and, um, and people who, who kind of care about you. Mm. Um, we do need to talk about Aaron Falk. So you just said, though, that this is his last book, his third book, last book. Yes. Did, yeah. we, did we know that? Did we all know that? No. So <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that in a second because that's, that's a big reveal. Um, so Aaron Volk is this great sort of, he's an everyman. He's like an every person character. He's, you know, he's not exceptional, but he's genuine and he's smart and he's kind. I love his insight, but he's kind of enough. That's my description of Aaron Volk. He's not like, he's not a superhero kind of crime mystery solver. He's, a, he's enough of a smart, intuitive person to do those things. But I wondered, you talked before about seeing a place and then thinking who lives in that place in order to tell the story. But how did Aaron Falk come to you? Because he's, he's in three of your novels. He's such a strong character on the page. Did you see him in your mind's eye? How did he, how did you construct him? No. So this is another thing, much like um, kind of that kind of flash of inspiration for, you know, ideas. I really um, kind of like to be honest about how I think characters come to me. And, you know, I would, I would absolutely love to have like this beautiful romantic story about how like thought kind of came to me and you know I thought yes this is the man who's had a dream my career that's right you know um this is going to be so great but um no I mean it's in actual fact the characters something that I think also held me back when I wanted to write a book was I I used to read these sort of great characters on pages and think you know how like the author is so lucky that they thought of someone like this who's kind of carrying their book you know through this series or whatever but um the in reality, for me, like characters, they are they are a function um, of storytelling in this, exactly the same way as you know the setting, choice of language, pacing, you know all that kind of stuff. That that is all the characters are like. They are not some sort of magical kind of element that's going to transform your story. They are there 
purely to tell the story, and that is their entire job, and you are completely in control of who they are. And it's okay to kind of use them for that function. So um, you know, they, they all have a job to do. They all need to kind of be doing some heavy lifting on the page. And I think for, for Fork, he was um, exactly as two-dimensional as that, you know, when I had the idea for the book, um, as all the characters were. So he, he sort of grew out of the functionality in that, in the dry, you know, it's set, it's set in, um, you know, it's set in this sort of drought-stricken town, and he, he goes back for the funeral of um, his, his former sort of childhood friend and, and family. And I wanted him to be, so the building blocks of him was I wanted him to be someone who, who knew the town, um, but not well, so it kind of left under a bit of a cloud. So he had some insight, but not current insights. Um, I wanted him to be someone who knew, um, knew the family. Um, again, historically, though, not really with a lot of up-to-date information. I, I didn't really want it to be like an ex-girlfriend or something, because I felt that kind of clouded the issue. It just sort of clouded the waters a little bit in ways that I, I thought weren't particularly helpful. So that's why he became a male character. Um, I wanted him to be... Um, kind of a, someone who had, again, some, some sort of policing knowledge or, you know, I guess an intelligence he could bring to this scenario without being kind of the slick city cop who could come in and tell the country boys how it's done. I wanted him to be very uncomfortable, kind of being dragged into this in a, in a way. And, um, yeah, and then I wanted him to be, like, you know, someone likeable. Like, I was kind of, you know, I, I sort of had enough of, you know, in the past, like, I guess, reading... Um, alcoholic, damaged police officers, you know, and you think, gosh, you know, you, you shouldn't even be behind the wheel of a car, let alone solving a crime. So, so I want him to be kind of functional and have, you know, kind of normal conversations. Yeah. And um, so, so that was like, it was, as, it was as black and white as that, really. And then that's the same for all the characters. And it, you got kind of going through that process for all of them, even like the secondary characters, even the minor ones. And then the more... And for me, they're really two-dimensional for a long time. Often they're unnamed. They're literally just called, you know, cop, brother, you know. Wow. Um, like, and, and it's only the more you kind of expose them to situations within the plot, you start to then learn their coffee order or what their, what their temperament is like or what they kind of you know, keep next to their bed or whatever. It's, it's, it's about exposing them to the situations within the plot that allow you to, to flesh them out, I find. What is Aaron Fox's coffee order? Well, he's from Melbourne. I'm, I'm going to say flat white, I yes, think. Yes, yeah. I think so. <laughs> so. And apparently overseas, a flat white's really exotic still. So um, I do have to say, as, a, as an aside, with two ginger people on stage, you made him really pale and sandy, and then you put him in this arid, dry place. Well, exactly. Really interesting. Why? It's well, kind of cruel, yeah. Jay. Yeah, I mean, that, and, uh, absolutely. And that was kind of part of it. The same way as him being a bit of a fish out of water with, you know, he doesn't like, he, he's uncomfortable in the town. He's not professionally... In, this, in, in the spaces he used to. And I also um, kind of physically wanted him to be a little bit uncomfortable with the, you know, just with the heat and the sun, mm. like he's sort of... Like um, us. That's right, exactly. <laughs> Channel yeah. myself in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love it. <laughs> She's on the page. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wondered about um, how different it was to write about him in Exiles. You just said a moment ago, in passing, like it's no big deal that this is his last book, that you're not going to write about him anymore. <laughs> Um, what was it like, though, to bring him to to bring to write about his story in Exiles? What were you thinking about, and why is it his last book? Yeah, I mean, I look, I I decided really early on that it was going to be the last book, and and I I felt um, really comfortable with that decision because I just I just know it's the right decision for him, and the reason being that I think, you know, he has a character he's given me so much. You know, he has launched my career. He's really 
Um, you know, and I love, I love kind of writing about him. So it's not that I'm kind of bored or want to move on or anything. It's more the fact that I think we all have examples of series, books, but also I, you know, I think particularly TV shows and things like that, where it has gone on too long, you know, and it's been the, the, the characters and the scenarios have not been able to sustain, you know, um, ongoing kind of adventures. And it becomes, you know, I mean, this guy's a, he's a, he's a financial investigator. I mean, how many bodies and things can he stumble over before it becomes, you know, murder she wrote, you know? And, um, and I think it's just really important, like, as an author, to kind of be clear, right? I mean, not every character is built for a 20-book series. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're just not. And I think it's really, it's really important to kind of be honest with that, about that and know when to say when and know when to, you know, try and give them that kind of the, the closure and the, the, the sort of... Um, you know, the, the kind of ending that they deserve, really. Mm. So you're talking about, you know, the, the last book of Aaron Folk, but you keep referring to The Dry, and I think it's worth at least talking a little bit about that. For people who don't know, before The Dry was even published, there was a bidding war, and Jane told me on the telephone that the film rights were bought for the, for the book before the book had been published. So it was an, an extraordinary success from the absolute get-go. And I wonder, did that sort of put pressure on you once it was out in the world? Was there an expectation of the kinds of books you write after The Dry? Yeah, I, I think there was. And I mean, because, I mean, I didn't really, um, you know, I didn't have any expectation when I was writing The Dry that it would get published. You know, I, I really, um, you know, I was working full-time as a journalist and um, I kind of, um, you know, I, I kind of wrote the, I wrote the book really because I, I kind of had a secret burning ambition to write a book for years and years and I'd never done anything about it. I just had, had kind of been waiting one day for this book to appear. You know, it never had. And, and, and I sort of thought, um, if I'm going to do it, I need to kind of fit it in around like my day job. And, um, and, and the thing that really helped me kind of mentally commit to it was letting go of what was going to happen afterwards because I think I'd always feared that I would put all this time and effort into it and it wouldn't get published and then, I, you know, it would feel like a complete waste. And I sort of it got to, I reached a point where I realised that actually um, writing it was enough. And, you know, if I wrote it and I learned something from it, then maybe I could write another book and maybe that one might be better and might get published and things. So it was, it was kind of um, a bit of a learning exercise for me writing that book. So, um, yeah, so then, then it did get published and, it, you know, and I was so, like, blown away by kind of the way it was kind of embraced by the industry and booksellers and, and readers. Um, but I, I also kind of knew that, um, you know, I didn't just want to write, yeah, this series with this same guy. And, and, and the, I guess the easy option for me at that time would have been to just write literally another book with him in, you know, in that drought-stricken community, kind of, I don't know, solving crimes with Reiko by his side, I guess. And, and that would have been it. But I, I honestly think if I'd done that, I, I don't believe I would be here today having this discussion. I think that would have been a very career-limiting thing to do. And I wanted to kind of rip that band-aid off, like, straight away and just be like, you know, it, I'm going to be doing different things and standalones and um, I, I try and sort of take the books where the stories take me, I guess. Mm. It's a very brave thing to do, actually, straight off the bat. Oh, thanks, Michaela. Yeah. That's, that's sure. <laughs> um, I mean, I think what a lot of... When I was thinking about how we describe Jane's books, I, you know, I was like, are they thrillers? And she was like, well, they're mysteries. But really, I think what I, when I speak to people about your books, what they love about them is this the sense of kind of family and community that's at the heart of them, that you take us, as you said, to little places where the fate matters and what school they go to matters. And your, your books really are about the relationship between people in those communities, the secrets they keep from one another. 
And I wondered what kind of motivates you to write that and why, why there's always a mystery at the heart of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, partly when I, um, you know, I, I do enjoy mystery books myself. I enjoy kind of books where there's a question and, you know, to be solved and then there's an answer at the end. So, um, you know, with some twists and turns and some surprises, those are kind of my favourite, you know, I guess some of my favourite types of books to read. Um, but I think the, you know, the, the crime itself is less interesting for me than, than that ripple effects. Um, you know, some of that kind of goes back to, I think, my journalism days when I used to go out and do some really, like, you know, kind of like, I guess, stories that were life-changing for the person involved, sometimes in a good way, often not in a good way, and, and sort of sitting with them in their kitchen and listening to them and kind of knowing that, um, you know, I would kind of go and, and write the story, but this is their life now, and, you know, you sort of wonder, what is that going to look like in kind of five years or ten years, knowing that this moment that you're kind of sharing with them, it, it has really altered things. And I think that's always been kind of interesting for me. And I, I think, you know, purely then on a practical level, you know, I, I think for me you need that in a novel. I think no matter how good and compelling your your mystery is or your, your crime, it's, it's not going to sustain you for 300 pages. You need to have the human elements and the readers kind of care about what is happening um, on the human side with it as well. Mm. <clears throat> in your novels, you do something really interesting with timing and it happens in exiles. You know, the prologue is set in a certain, there's a moment where uh, we, we discover, that discover a baby that's been left in a pram that's been either abandoned or the mother is missing. And then all of the action in the book takes place 12 months later. And it's a little bit the same in the dry. You know, there are these kind of incidents that happened previously. And I wondered if you could talk about how important timing is in constructing a story, a mystery story that will keep us as readers going all the way through. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important. Um, and, you know, Exiles is a really good example because, yeah, we do open up with this, this, this sort of disappearance and then the bulk of the action, um, all of it really takes place 12 months later. So it's kind of the anniversary of the disappearance. Um, and when I was um, planning that book, because I, I plan a lot, you know, and I kind of worked things out a lot on the page um, before I start, start writing. And um, I did actually sort of initially approach that with the idea that um, it would all be, you know, we'd have a, a disappearance and then it would be, the, the action would be taking place kind of in those, you know, in, in that immediate aftermath and um, it would all kind of be happening and, and Fork would be involved and um, that question would be sort of live and active about where, where is this woman gone. Um, and then it became really apparent quite early that um, the problem with that is that there's some, some books that are told really well in that format and that's that kind of really suspenseful, kind of fast-paced moment. But um, the, 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 the problem with that is it sucks all the oxygen out of the room. So everything, every single scene has to be about that. And there's no, um, there's no opportunity for anybody to sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about anything else without looking completely callous. You know, there's, no, there's, no, there's no kind of quiet conversations. There's no moments of reflection. There's no having a beer with a friend. There's nothing of that because everybody has to be totally focused, focused. on it. And... Um, and I felt with exiles like it needed to have it needed to have that opportunity for reflection. And so, um, so I thought about it for a little while, and then I thought, would it work if I kind of separated things out? And it, for me, that worked a lot better because it was able. Um, it was that kind of interesting time where people are trying to kind of rebuild their lives a bit mm. and make peace with something that they haven't really got the answers for. Mm. And I guess also the, the the time lapse gives people a chance to reflect as well. That's right on their own kind of actions and their, what they maybe could or couldn't have done and um, all that kind of thing. So it's just a bit, um, yeah, it just sort of slows 
the pace down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And again, it, it really depends on the type of the book. Some books wouldn't work well with that, that slightly slower timeline. But um, yeah, I think this story needed it. Mm. You also do, you play around with the number of people we meet in the book. You know, there are some of your books like Force of Nature. We spend all this time with kind of the five women who are, you know, on the executive retreat that goes horribly wrong. Don't ever go on an executive retreat is my <laughs> upshot of that, really. Um, but you also then in Exiles, it's a really, it's quite a big cast. You've got toddlers, you've got teenagers, you've got, you know, romance, you've got people who met 16 months ago. There are a lot of people to keep track of and you do it brilliantly. I'm wondering what your choices are around a small cast of characters to a big cast of characters. Yeah, and like it really depends, on, um, to be honest, on the type of story, you, you know, you're trying to tell. And um, so I, um, I kind of work from the, the ground up. Like I don't kind of, um, with the plots as well and everything, like I don't kind of start with lots and lots of stuff and then whittle it down. I, I start with kind of nothing and then try and build it up. So, you know, so who do you need? So you need the main character. Okay, so who, you know, why, why is he in South Australia and he's there because the Reiko family is there? And okay, so then what does that family look like? Who are their friends? And, and, and you know, I'm always sort of thinking, like, what is, this, what is this person bringing to this story? Like, they have to bring something. Ideally, really, in real terms, they all have to kind of be a suspect in some way. That has to be, that's probably kind of important for almost all of them. Um, well, actually, not maybe, you know, it, it sort of depends. But, like, a lot of them have to be, they have to maybe be involved, actively involved in, like, the, the crime or the mystery. It helps, um, you know, to have this variety of ages, I find. I, th I find sometimes if I'm a bit stuck, um, if you kind of change the ages a little bit, sometimes that can open doors because teenagers see things differently than adults do. Children can make observations out loud that maybe... Again, adults would not, you know, they, so the, the ages and the, um, the makeup of the family groups can sometimes give you, give your main character insights that they need in order to, to work out what's going on. Um, and then they all kind of need to, um, like, like they, I, I think another thing that they all need to do, they all need to kind of carry the story a little bit in some way. So again, sometimes when I'm a bit stuck in the planning and it f it's feeling kind of heavy and bogged down. I can't, uh, you, you know, I, I now listen really early on to like anything where it feels like I'm kind of having to push uphill. And at that point I kind of stop and I sort of rewind a little bit and I think, why is this, why is this hard work? Like, why is this not working? And um, often a really good tip that I found is um, getting the secondary characters to do more because sometimes you have this like core of like maybe the, the primary characters and they are doing everything. Like they're solving the mystery, they're having intense conversations, they're revealing clues. And if you kind of spread the load a little bit, you know, there's no reason why a secondary character can't reveal something important or can't have observed something in the past, you know. And that's, at A, it brings them in, it gives them more page time, but it also just makes the whole interaction between the whole group a bit more authentic and balanced. Mm, mm. Um, you have been dubbed by the Sunday Times as the Queen of Outback Noir, which I love. Um, but you do write about place really powerfully, and often the places that the places in your books are places where terrifying things happen. And I wondered whether it's something about the land or it's something about the people on that land. And it makes me think about some of the writing in in decades gone by about Australia was this idea of this kind of terrifying menace of nothingness the way that maybe British people when they first came to Australia couldn't see things that were familiar. The land looked so foreign and so kind of empty, which we know it wasn't empty, that they had this sort of depiction of it as being overwhelming, that its, its foreignness would be terrifying, would be violent to them. 
And I wondered, when you're writing about landscape, is it, are you trying to get us to think about landscape as a, as a menacing place, as another kind of character in the book that, that, that is a threat? Or is it about what people do, the terrible things people do when they're in that place, when they think no one's watching? Yeah, I think it's definitely more, more to second. It's more about the, the human nature of it. I mean, the settings um, for me are always kind of there to um, enhance the reading experience, you know, and um, they kind of are chosen, yes, to support the plots. And I think a lot of the plots I have kind of work best in somewhere that's like a little bit more isolated or have that kind of kind of a bubble, I guess, where it's not like a city where you've got like a thousand people coming and going every day and you can just hop on a train and be somewhere else. You're sort of forced to interact with your neighbours and people maybe you don't like. And there's, there's sort of um, incidents that happened in the past that still linger because, you know, it's it's still the same group of people there 20 years later. And so a lot of the, the setting choices are made because they lend themselves really well to those kind of, I guess, closed room sort of mysteries, really. Um yeah, the books for me are, are always about kind of more like the human nature and how I guess they, you know, they are reacting to, you know, what's in front of them. And part of that is, you know, the environment they're in and how they feel about their community or this location they found themselves in. I always try and have like respect for the place that I go to. So I, I go and do quite a lot of, you know, on the ground research um, for the books and I speak to people who live there and try and um, do, you know, do my best you know, as, an, as an outsider to kind of really capture what it is for them living in that region and, and what it's like, you know, knowing that I guess even though the places are fictionalised, you know, that you can, you can kind of pinpoint that region on a map. And there are people who live there and, you know, love it and they've made their homes there. And I think it's about trying to capture that in a respectful way as well. Mm. And I think not only do your books work for readers in Australia who might be familiar with some of those places, they're also really they're adored overseas. But I wondered as well, when people are receiving your books and reading your books, have you ever had strange receptions to things where you think, well, that's a normal Australian thing? Yeah, I think so. It's, it's interesting how um, some things are... Um, it, it is interesting actually seeing the books being read overseas and the kind of... You, you, know, you do get like, different questions over there. Um, the, um, I found actually in Europe, I got... Um, particularly with the dry, I got a lot of questions about um, the, the like, lack of religion within the books, like the, which... Honestly, it hadn't even crossed my mind, you know. Um, but they, they, so they were sort of surprised there wasn't, there was, wasn't more kind of church going and, wow. and things. And then um, the, going through the, the US, the US um, publishers have their own kind of um, edit in the book um, very late on. So it's essentially the same book, but they will go through with like a US reader, um, like a professional like US editor, I guess, to kind of go through and, you know, check that it's sort of accessible and understanding. Um, the the thing that the the US of all the books and all the things and the, the one thing that gets mentioned time after time after time in the US is a scene in the dry where um, Fork is in the um, his hotel room at the the pub um, in his hometown and he's lying in the bed and he kind of looks up and he does a does a huntsman spider in the room and he just kind of you know okay fine like rolls his eyes and gets on with things and I, the number of comments I get about how you know why did he not burn that hotel room to the <laughs> And, um, because Australia, like... Yeah, and, and they, they cannot get over that scene. And, it, and they actually even, I think in the Australian edition, it says there's a huntsman in the corner. And we had to change that to huntsman spider because, again, it was quite confu confusing, you know? <laughs> so, so there's little things like that, all these, like, quirky things you never, That's you know, you never think of when you're writing. There's a guy with a hunting cap <laughs> and a big rifle in his tiny hotel room. <laughs> magic. Absolutely magic. Oh, that's so funny. Um, we uh, we mentioned before that that the dry was turned into this you know fabulous film starring Eric Eric Banner, and Force of Nature has also been turned into a film, 
And what we want to do today as a special treat before we talk about that process for Jane of, that, of her books being adapted is to play you the teaser trailer. <laughs> I know, it's very exciting. The film comes out in August. So we're going to, because the, because the film is very, um, you'll see the film is very dark and mysterious, we need to bring the house lights up a little bit so you can see the screen. And then we'll keep on talking. So we're ready for the trailer. Yay. Fantastic. So that is, um, that's going to be August, as they said. So tell us about this process of having your films adapted. Has it been the same team of people who did The Dry and Force of Nature? What's it like to see your story brought to life in that medium? Yeah, it has been the same team. And they'll be honestly so delighted by that little spontaneous round of applause. They'll be so, so thrilled. Um, so thank you. For, um, and yeah, so it's the same. Um, so I love the adaptation of The Dry. I just... Um, it, I just thought it was so beautifully done and it was such a kind of thoughtful and intelligent and sensitive, um, you know, adaptation of the book. And um, I was, I felt really, I feel really lucky to, um, you know, have Robert Connolly at the helm of that. He he wrote the scripts and he directed it. And I think, you know, it's like, it doesn't, I guess it's just luck really, but I've, I think our visions for kind of, what we hoped the film would be completely aligned. And, um, you know, he, he really understood the book um, and he understood, I think, how to kind of look beneath, um, you know, the, the, the kind of, I guess, the surface of what's, what's literally on the page and understand the, the relationships and the, um, what's driving the characters and then be able to kind of um, express that on screen in a way that feels so organic and authentic to the original source. Um, so, yeah, so Robert Connolly is, 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 is again, has done Force of Nature. He wrote the scripts and directed it and Eric Banner is back, which is amazing, which is so good. Um, and so I've seen the film. I mean, I, I personally absolutely loved it. I think, I mean, that, my opinion probably is a bit irrelevant, but I think... Um, <laughs> But I we think, disagree. <laughs> I guess because I mean I guess people like you know what what people's people's taste varies, doesn't it? But I mean I think what I would say is if you enjoyed if you enjoy the books, um, you will absolutely enjoy the film. If you um, enjoyed the adaptation of the dry, this is you will you will enjoy this as well. This is apt. They were all of a similar. You know, the, the the quality, tone, feel, execution that are all of a family. You know they they. Um, you know, and I just loved it. I honestly, I'm really excited for it to come out um, because they've just, once again, done such a beautiful job with it. Mm. I think you were saying before that it's when you see that story on the big screen, you also realise what Jane did on the page, which is she gave us all of these scenes. 75% of the book is five women together in a cabin, not because they're someone's, I mean, they're our sisters, but not because they're someone's wife or spouse or anything else. So they, you know, they, they talk in the film industry about the Bechdel test. That is there? A, can there be a female character in a film that isn't some related, isn't there just to propel a, ma a man's action forward? And you realise that in the film you've given us these fabulous women. What was it like to see them come to life and to see the casting of those five women? Yeah, I mean the, the casting of the is is just amazing. Like the, the, I'd, I'd heard kind of before I saw the film, you know they um they kind of say oh yeah we hope you love it and and you know and they and they said you know you think you've, you're really fine like the scenes with like the five women kind of out in the the bushland there's something really special with them. And, and so I'd kind of got into it with like quite high hopes, but it, there is something really, um, really exciting about, it. I guess, seeing those, that group of actors interact is such a kind of authentic and, um, yeah, just, just really, um, 
gripping way. Like, I mean, honestly, I would, like, like, I know this book pretty well. I was on the edge of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, they've just done really, they're just really great. They're so, there's something so powerful about it. They're beautifully cast. The five of them together are so believable. They, they um, you know, it's, it's, it, the whole thing just works so well. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, I really, I honestly could not be happier with it. I, I have, I had, I, I saw, I saw a script and I saw a rough cut of it. I had no notes. Like there was nothing. I said, just wow. using, you know, it's still time to change things. And, and I didn't have anything. I thought they just, you know. It's very rare. They, they, I think that's quite yeah. rare from when you hear. I mean, so, there are sometimes where, and you didn't, you weren't involved at all with writing the script. It's all Robert Connolly. No, it was yeah. Robert Connolly. Yeah. I mean, he, um, he. He actually doesn't have to, they, the whole team didn't have to involve me at all contractually, um, but he is um, a really nice professional guy and I think he sees the benefit in kind of, you know, um, you know, we don't have to compete on this. We can kind of work together to try and make the best sort of products. And so he, he actually involves me quite a lot um, in terms of we, we would meet, um, just have a coffee and chat about what he was thinking and um, I got to go on sets and see, um, like, see them in action and... And you were an extra in the dry, and I think your husband was an extra in yeah. the dry as well. Yeah. Did you make it into Force of Nature? Are you, no. are you climbing the rugged terrain and slipping down things? I are you didn't. in the waterfall? No, I, try, I, I, I actually did. I actually tried my absolute best to get in this film as well. Um, but, um, <laughs> well, what would they have had you do? Well, what exactly. And honestly, yeah, there was the, the only option. Um, a ranger? Declined. Yeah, it was a, it was a 4 a.m. kind of SES suit tramping through the bush. And, you know, and it was just, it was, it, and so, you know, and I... I could tell I would barely be on screen. So I thought, no. <laughs> um, so, so no, so I just went along and kind of went on what was the, um, the easy day, which was when they were filming a lot of lodge scenes. Um, but it, yeah, it's interesting when I was watching the film and I had the, the credits come up, there's only about like 10 people in the film. Yeah. Like it's a really, it's a, very, it's a, real it's a small, cast. very close cast. And it sounds like filming was, I'm sure when the film comes out, they cast and people will do interviews um, about how hard the filming was. Like they, I honestly, I cannot have a discussion with anybody in the, the film or production without hearing the word leeches mentioned. It's, it's, oh. it's, so, um, Good yeah, one they really, not to be an extra they worked, on, Yeah, they yeah. worked hard for it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping that when Exiles is adapted, she goes to the wine country. Absolutely. To be an extra right. You'll be in yeah. that one, yeah. <laughs> so we spoke before about Aaron Falk on the page, who we love, who's sandy blonde and really pale-skinned and medium-billed and kind of ordinary. And then you've got Eric Barner on the screen. He's different. <laughs> different somehow, you know, taller maybe, darker maybe, maybe mind-blowingly charismatic. Um, how does it feel to see Aaron Falk as Eric Banner plays him, as opposed to the one you created? And is it weird for you that people might come to these characters by seeing the films first and seeing this Aaron Falk? Yeah, no, I mean, I look, I, I love Eric Banner in that role. And I remember, um, like, the first time I kind of heard his name, so, so I, I met actually with Robert Connolly, and um, we went for coffee, and he said, "So we've got some, we've got an. Act so I want to talk to you about casting. Again, I have no, I have no power of veto over this. So this is purely a courtesy conversation. But um, but again, he's a nice guy, and they, you know, um, we're kind of interested in my thoughts. So um, so we've got we've got this person interested. Um, you know, he like he's really keen. He's read the books. We think he'd be great. We just wanted to know how you thought. And and my." Um, my overriding memory of that moment is my hand kind of reaching for my phone because I was certain that whatever name Robert Connolly said next, 
I was going to have to Google that person. <laughs> and I was going to have to look up how he had a really great recurring guest role in Home and Away. And yeah. I he have, was a really you know, great theatre actor. That's right. Know. I think I've seen that commercial. You know, all that kind of stuff. And we'd have this lovely plot and how he's up and coming. He's going to be a star. And then name was Eric Banner. And it was like, and I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Like, and the thing, the next thing that kind of I really remember about that is thinking like, Yes, that is an inspired choice. And even though, like I know, like physically he doesn't fit the role, but he fits the he does fit the role in the ways that count. And that is someone who, you know, people warm to automatically. He is, you know, someone you believe in, you want to follow him through the story. Um, he's, you know, he's Australian. He's, you know, absolutely Australian. He's beloved um, in a way that, you know, makes you want to kind of engage with him in, you know, on the screen. And um, I think the, the real test for me has been the way that readers have completely embraced him. And, you know, now, I mean, I couldn't, um, I couldn't think of anyone, anyone who has brought, having seen a dry and having seen this film, I can't think of another kind of actor who could have brought what he has brought to that role and made it his own in such, in such a way that he has. Mm. In this process of seeing now two of your books adapted to the big screen, has it made you think about maybe wanting to write scripts or write for TV or film? No, I think it's the opposite, honestly, if anything. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually completely put me off in so many ways. Um, you know, I mean, partly I think just I, I really, it's made me really realise how much like t- TV and film is such a, it's such a collaborative process. And, you you know, with a book, you know, you, know, with this, you have to get so many people's important things. And that, that's kind of not, um, you know, I'm not sure if that's for anybody, but certainly not for me, you know. Um, but I think, you know, with the books, I mean, I mean, I am... Um, I know kind of the, the, the kind of ultimate kind of, it's sort of seen a bit as the ultimate kind of tick of approval when you get your, you know, your book adapted into for film and TV. But for me, um, like genuinely, that was never really the goal. Like I, I just wanted to, I wanted to write a book because I, I love books and I loved reading. And I wanted to see my book in the library. You know, that was kind of my, my ultimate end goal. And um, it's, you know, it still is. Like it's still, it's still what I love to do and it's, it's what I'm... Um, you know, it's, it's my kind of whole, it's what I'm best at. Like, I don't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily be good at writing, you know, in a different format. Um, and I think it's just um, for anything to kind of be worth me taking time away from that, it would have to be something I'd be really, really passionate about. And I can't really think of anything that that would be. Mm. I want to ask our lovely tech people to bring the lights up now because we've got time for your questions when you're ready. Hi, Jane. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Um, well, first off, I'd like to say I really enjoyed... Um, reading The Dry and Force of Nature. And, um, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, my question for you is, um, I know Exiles just was released, but are there any plans to turn that into a film? So, so officially um, nothing has been, is, is kind of concrete with that. I mean, I personally would, I would love it. I mean, I've, um, yes, I've signed over the option to them, you know, for them to sort of consider, you know, um, if they would like to kind of make a third one. I think, um, look, I think, I think you know, the, the willingness from a lot of parties is, is kind of there, um, you know, whether it's kind of things happen or not. Probably a lot of it will have to do with, honestly, how well Force of Nature does it at cinema. So if you want to see Exiles come, then, you know, <laughs> gather 20 or 30 of your closest friends and go see it a few times and <laughs> help things along. But, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I would, like, I would love to. I mean, I would fully support... I would absolutely fully support it if they if they kind of want to go down that route. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed. I guess we'll watch this space. I'll let you know on my social media if and when <laughs> anything happens with that one. 
Hi, Jane. Um, I just wanted to ask, I went to um, Robert Conley and Eric Banner a couple of years ago, huge fan of your work, um, and they were talking, and it was a question that I wanted to ask and I didn't ask, but with the dry, um, the cause in terms of the murder is to do with gambling. You know, there's a debt um, that the person can't pay. And I thought it was really well done in the film adaptation as well. We know... Um, gambling harm in Australia and if anyone's been you know the adverts are just unbelievable out of control um, was that something that you wanted to get across so yeah so it's a great question yeah thank you for that one because uh, with all so in terms of themes in the books because you know in in I guess in a crime and mystery book there's always going to be there's always going to be kind of themes and challenges and things that emerge for the characters um, I, w- I, I tend to approach it more from the, um, again, from like the base level, like ground level up. So I never really go into a book thinking, you know, I'm going to, um, I, I really want to explore this theme or I'm going to really kind of make a point of like bringing this in because I think then it becomes a bit artificial and there's things that, you know, you can kind of tell sometimes I think when authors have wanted to really explore something that maybe hasn't been, you know, they, they, that's kind of the focus of the book and it, it can feel a bit shoehorned. So I, when I'm thinking about themes and kind of motivations for people. It's more, um, again, trying to expose their characters to situations within the planning stages and trying to work out what kind of things they might, what pressures they might be under, what challenges they face, um, and letting hopefully those themes kind of emerge naturally from, from, the, from the group of people. So that's, that's kind of how I, I approach it. And, you know, I, I think hopefully if you know, when I think about across all the books, if you're sort of trying to think about the characters and who they are and what's in their life, um, hopefully the themes that emerge are natural in that we, f- we recognise them and we feel like they are things we, we see in our, in our everyday lives ourselves. Um, I just wondered, as someone who's lived and worked both abroad and in Australia, what really drove you to build all of your books in a really kind of uh, specific Australian Australian landscape, and do you think any of these stories could have worked if you'd built them out in a British landscape or um, or a space somewhere else? Uh, is there an aspect of the lived Australian experience that really adds a new dimension to the stories? Yeah, I think definitely. Yeah, and because um, because I because I'm you know I was born in England and I lived in England for quite a lot of my um, you know my teenage years and my first kind of working years as a journalist. And um, when I was thinking about what I'm going to writing the first book that became The Dry, I, I did actually consider, like, do I write it in Australia or do I try and write it in England? Because I, at that point as, as well, I was sort of more familiar with England than I am now, like a few years on. Um, and, and part of it, though, um, why I decided to, to go for Australia was partly, yeah, purely um, the fact that I lived here. And I felt that I could, I could you know, do that research better. I could kind of tap in a little better, better to... Yeah, there's kind of conversations and things that were being had, um, capture the landscape a little bit better. And, um, and also I felt like I'd read growing up so many books, particularly crime books set in England. You know, it was, a, it was something like I was really, really familiar with. And I sort of thought, what, what could I possibly bring to that space? It hasn't been done so many times before, better than I as a debut author were going to attempt it. And there's, 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 there's definitely like a lot of like Australian crime books as well. But as a reader growing up, I was not as familiar with them as I was. So it was something that I think, I think um, yeah, just being able to um, write something about Australia for me felt like 
something like a bit fresher for me. Um, and then having had that dual experience of growing up in the UK and out in Australia, I think I was able to, at that time, pinpoint a little bit better what's um, made Australia different from, from overseas as well and try and capture that a bit in the books too. Hi. I think one of the things that I love so much about your writing is the way that you pretty much paint with words. Um, and I'm just wondering, you talked a lot about your process for the overall planning and, and plot, but do you have a specific process um, when you are approaching a scene um, and, and creating that scene and building that scene up? Yeah, I mean, my, my main... Um, that's a great question because, I mean, I think my main kind of... The thing that really works for me is honestly having done the thinking beforehand and it, come, it does come back to that planning because um, I'll have planned out the whole book and I'll, I'll know exactly, so when, exactly what happens at every stage and my plans are huge, you know, and they, they like, I know who's, who's involved, what's going to happen, how the chapter starts, how it ends, how it's going to lead into the next chapter, what the reader's going to discover, all that kind of stuff. And I think um, that means that then when I actually come to write the scene, I can open up my notes and I know what's going to happen I'm not having to, to work it out. I can literally say, okay, they're going to have this conversation at the coffee shop. It's going to be about this and the reader's going to learn this. And then, it's, and then I can concentrate on making it, like making it nice and engaging. You know, what elements am I going to bring in? You know, is it, you know it, and it, it's about kind of, I guess, finding those, um, you know, finding those sort of elements that are going to really make it an enjoyable experience for the reader. But that, that's kind of the biggest tip for me is just knowing what it's, the scene's going to be about so that you can just concentrate on finding the right words to tell it at the time. Hi. Um, most of your books involve sort of a dual mystery. Sometimes they come together, sometimes there's suggestion that they are related and sometimes they're completely separate events happening at many years apart, like in the dry. Why do you choose to create that kind of like parallel running mystery throughout the story, one which is being resolved and one which perhaps is not being resolved? Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of um, comes back to, again, like writing kind of books that I like to read. So, I mean, I do, I do like books where there's sort of something that happens and something else and the question, there's a little bit of question about are they related, are they not? And um, it was, I think... Um, as well, on a purely practical level, I think having two mysteries, it tends to um, give you a bit more, um, like a bit, a bit more um, help along the way. Because like having one, just one mystery for 300 pages, like it's a lot to carry. Like that has to be a really solid, engaging mystery with lots of twists and turns. And it can be quite hard, I think, to kind of sustain that level of interest over the whole book. Whereas if you have something else kind of bubbling along, it just, it just helps... It, it, it helps me out so much because, you know, you can, you can turn to it, you can kind of drop threads, you know, and it, it just gives you that, um, the reader something else to kind of cling on to and, and creates a few more avenues and questions. Um, so it's partly, yeah, just like I, I like to read them and also, yeah, from that practical level, I think it just gives you a bit more substance to the book. Um, I just had a question. I am an English tutor, so I've been tutoring for a few years and a lot of the times I teach creative writing. Um, it's very difficult to teach, definitely for me, especially. Um, I am a young writer and I take so much inspiration from your build of landscape. Um, that's something my students struggle with a lot, is building landscape not along with the character and coming up with the beautiful imagery that you have. Um, I often use your books as examples for them to kind of take inspiration from. I was wondering if you have any advice for like how to kind of help young writers in building landscape. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's, it's a bit of a tightrope because, um, you know, you want to create that sense of, that, you know, that sense of place that a reader can really respond to. But at the same time, I think, I think for me, um, my rule of thumb is like less is more. And I think um, because I think there's nothing more kind of off-putting as a reader than like turning the page and it just being a page full of description about the old tumble-down barn or whatever, you know. Um, so like the, the best way that I find to do it is to um, kind of let it come up naturally in the course of the scene anyway. So what, what is the scene, what is happening in that scene? What, what does the reader need to learn and what, what is the kind of purpose of, of that scene and, and what it's bringing to the book? And then within that, can you then set that scene somewhere that is kind of unique to that location? Or can they be doing something like work or something that is kind of, you know, going um, to support that, that setting? Um, you know, what's, what's the heat like? What's the what are they wearing, you know, um, all that sort of stuff. And, it, and I find that's more effective than, you know, bodies of, like, chapter, you know, paragraphs of description. Um, a lot of it, though, is a little bit kind of trial and error. And sometimes maybe, you know, you do need to kind of get that description on a page and then take a good hard look at it and try and cross it out, you know, <laughs> sort of can you, can you tell it in a different way. Um, but, yeah, like trying to weave it into the action that's already happening I think is the is the is the kind of the way that I tend to approach it. We can fit in one more question. Okay, this is about your process. So when you start um, your first draft, do you write an outline? Do you write little cards? And do you know what the ending is going to be before you start your second draft? Yes. So I always know the ending. So when I'm thinking about that um, initial idea, I'm actually more thinking about the ending than the beginning of the book. What's happened and what has brought them to this moment. Um, and then I make, yeah, I would spend months and months kind of making little notes. Every time I think about the book, I'm making notes on my phone. Um, and then I would, at some point, bring them all together and I do a whole kind of skeleton outline. And then I expand that. Just keep on going. It's just, it's, it's so boring. But just you keep on going back to it over and over again, like adding in, finessing it, trying to kind of just elevate little bits. And um, by the end, yeah, I would have this probably a 50,000 word outline for like, a 90,000-word book with every chapter kind of laid out. So that then, and that's the point at which I would start writing. And then you can write it quite quickly because you've already done the, all the heavy, like, thinking. So mm. that's how I do it anyway. Thank you. Thanks. Wonderful question. But I want to thank you all very much for being part of um, the Joy of Sydney Writers' Festival, for being here today. Please join me in thanking Jane Harper. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.